0: Five, four, three, two, one. Hello, this is Peter Bogdanovich. I first met Orson Welles in the end of 1968. I had uh, written a monograph about him for the Museum of Modern Art in 1961 and uh, sent it off to him in Europe, but never met him at that time. Seven years later, now living in Los Angeles, having moved there from New York, I received a phone call uh, in the afternoon, and a familiar voice said, may I speak to Peter Bogdanovich? I said, this is he. And he said, hello, this is Orson Welles. I can't tell you how long I've wanted to meet you. And I said, you just took my line. And uh, he laughed. And he said, can you come over and meet me at the uh, Beverly Hills Hotel tomorrow? I said, sure. I said, what, what, why did you want to meet me all, all these years? He said, because you have written the truest words ever published about me in English, and, uh, which was referring to the monograph. So the next day, sure enough, I went over and met with him and spent three hours with him and uh, brought him a present of a book I had just published about John Ford, who's, was probably, who was, in fact, Orson's favorite American director. And um, I had quoted from something he'd said about Ford, in which he called him a poet and a comedian. And uh, so I gave him a copy of this book, inscribed, of course. And um, as we was leaving, he said, isn't it a pity that you uh, can't write a nice little book like this about me? And I said, well, why can't I? He said, he said, well, you're busy, you're a big director now. I had directed one movie about that point. He said, you haven't time for that. I said, I, I would love to write, a, a, do an interview book with you. He said, well, let's do it then. And so we got a deal, and that began a long, long story about how long it took to interview Orson for years and then rewrite it and then get it published. It actually wasn't published until long after he died. I use my head very much, except Nevertheless, I'm going to read to you some portions of a conversation, actually a series of conversations that Orson and I had about The Lady from Shanghai, put together. Um, and after that, I'll tell you some more stories about uh, my experiences with The Lady from Shanghai and Orson Welles. So I said to him, I thought The Lady from Shanghai was a far more interesting thriller than The Stranger. Orson said, so did I. But What was the Hollywood reaction generally to it? Orson said, friends avoided me. Whenever it was mentioned, people would clear their throats and change the subject very quickly, out of consideration for my feelings. I only found out it was considered a good picture when I got to Europe. First nice thing I ever heard about it from an American was Truman Capote. One night in Sicily, he quoted whole pages of dialogue, word for word. I said, I guess that's called being ahead of your time. Orson said, it's called being in trouble. I said, how'd you uh, come to make the movie? Orson said, well, I was working on Around the World in 80 Days, and we found ourselves in Boston on the day of the premiere, unable to get the costumes from the station because $50,000 was due and our producer, Mr. Todd, had gone broke. Without that money, we couldn't open. I called Harry Cohn in Hollywood and I said, I have a great story for you if you send me $50,000 by telegram in one hour. I'll sign a contract to make it. What story, Cohen said. I I was calling from a payphone, and next to it was a display of paperbacks, and I gave him the title of one of them. Lady from Shanghai, I said. Buy the novel, and I'll make the film. An hour later, we got the money. Well, the title of the book is actually if I die before I wake. So maybe that's what he said to him. But anyway, Cohen did send the money and he did make the movie. I said to Orson, there's a quote from Peter Noble's book, Lady from Shanghai, cost a fortune, lost a fortune and finished Wells's career at any of the big Hollywood studios, unquote. Orson said, the truth is that it cost about the same as any other Rita Hayworth picture of the period. And if it didn't do as well as the box o- at the box office as some of the others, I don't think it did either of us any real harm. I went to Europe after that and stayed there, but I wasn't run out of town. Harry Cohen told me, I'm never going to make a picture like this again. He had a good point. His reasons were, not because of the script, you understand. It's the script I approved, and I liked it, and I don't care what anybody says. It's just because nobody should be the director and producer, and also the leading actor in any picture. There's no way that he can be fired. Somebody has a deal like that, what's the use of me owning my own studio? I might as well be janitor." Orson of course would laugh at that a big, roaring, earth-shattering laugh, which there's no way I can imitate. I said, going through the records, I found that the delays in shooting hadn't anything to do with you. Most of them were caused by Rita Hayworth's illnesses. Orson said, I'd forgotten that. Yes, that's what got the home office into such a tizzy about Mexico. I said, also, according to Dick Wilson, who was one of the associate producers on the picture, there was a production manager from Columbia who insisted on doing things at the studio that could have been done cheaper on location. Orson said, in those days, they had a... There was a deep distrust of all locations. They did not let us go in the first place. But then, just three days too early, they yanked us all back to Gower Gulch. Gower Street is where Columbia Pictures was situated. I'm shipping out tomorrow. Three days more, and we'd have wrapped up the whole thing in Mexico, Orson went on. Interrupting interrupting that meant that all sorts of bits and pieces had to be patched together in the studio in front of a process screen with poor Rudy Matte, who was the, one of the three cameramen on the picture, endlessly fiddling about when we could have knocked it all off very briskly at the real location. And yet, you know, some of that tricking we had to do gave that part of the picture a dreamlike air, which I rather liked, scenes with Rita at night and down by the sea. I said, somebody wrote that you began shooting with only a 16-page screenplay. Orson said, well, you've got the files on that. Yes, I said, I've seen several versions of the script, Orson said. There was a report on that script made by made for Cohen by Helen Deutsch. And in our first meeting, he held this in his lap with my script propped in front so I couldn't see the report, using it as a sort of pony from which he was cribbing. What kind of report, I said. Most favorable, Orson said. As I learned later from my spies, I had some of my own. Harry had hundreds. What did you mean by... One of Rita's last lines in the picture: "Give my love to the sun. Uh, give my love to the sunrise." Orson said, well, "I guess my character O'Hara was one of those poor sods who watches sunrises and quotes poetry." You don't watch sunrises. I almost never quote poetry, but you read poetry. Yes, write it. I try.
1: Excuse me. Uh, I wonder if you could help me locate it. Why
0: did you have Rita sing in the picture? How could she not? And you recorded it rather lovingly. How could I not? According to Richard Wilson, the song sequence was actually added at the request of Harry Cohen. I said, would you agree the picture was a kind of sad farewell to Rita Hayworth? Orson made an unidentifiable grunt, like, hmm. I said, it's been read that way. Orson said, we'd been separated for a couple of years. She wanted to do the picture, and that brought us back together for a while. Lady from Shanghai was written, as you know, for quite another actress, Barbara Lag. Not for an important star, and then of course, when we were divorced soon after shooting, a theory got around that the whole project was some kind of sinister vengeance on poor Rita. Actually, it was Harry's idea and hers that she play the part, thus making it a big, expensive, Hayworth a picture, which was the last thing I wanted to be involved with, working as I was on that, for free. I said, free? Well, Orson said, my money, such as there was of it, had all gone to that costume company in New York. Around the world in 80 days, ate it all up six months earlier, and all I wanted was to work off the obligation and get clear. But, as it turned out, I was lucky to have her. Rita's awfully good in it, don't you think? And at the time, people didn't even notice she was too famous as a cover girl. Oh, the French loved her, but then the French do not automatically assume that if a girl is beautiful, it follows that she's a lousy actress. I said, why did you cut her hair and try to change her image, so to speak? Orson said, well, Don't forget Peter. She was going to play a kind of person she'd never been on the screen. She couldn't come on as the well-established pinup. She needed a whole new look. So we made her platinum blonde with very short hair. You can imagine how delighted Harry Cohen was when he found out about that. Did he ever say anything to you about it? Yes, indeed, but we never really quarreled. He had my office bugged, though, with about three microphones. And at the beginning of the day, when I came in for the work, I used to make an announcement. Good morning, I'd say. This is the Mercury office. We welcome you to another day of fascinating good listening, and we'd sign off with music. Tune in again to us next morning.
1: A guy with an edge. What makes him sing better? And
0: you rather liked him, didn't you? Yes, in an awful sort of way. He was quite admirable. He had guts and knew what he wanted, he wasn't a faker. He was totally ruthless and a self-confessed Vulgarian, and I suppose cruel, too, but I didn't really suffer at his hands, though that's a picture that was ruined for me to a great extent by what happened to the soundtrack. Oh, says I. Orson, we had to preview it. That's the only movie I personally ever previewed. Took it out to Santa Barbara. And for that one preview performance, I made a temporary music track out of old stock stuff from the library. It was quite effective. I felt confident that in constructing the real score, if they would just follow that, bringing it in and out just as I'd done, we couldn't go far wrong. I assumed I'd made a clear-cut blueprint for both music and effects. But in the event, it was just hastily hashed together. Instead of allowing me to get a composer who would work with me, Cohen snuck in some fast fellow who put terrible music wherever he felt like it. I didn't mind the theme song, but the incidental music was clumsily handled throughout. For example, the mirror scene at the end should have been absolutely silent, except for the crashing glass and ricocheting bullets. Like that, it was terrifying. All that was lost, of course, with that corny string choir snoring away under it, please don't kiss me, but if you kiss me, don't take your lips away. You know, while while they were shooting it out among their own reflections
1: gonna be a real nice cruise. First the Panama Canal, then up the Mexican coast. We need a bosun, Danny Boy. Ever done any sailing? A bit of it. I saw you last night at the garage it was. Somebody else, Danny Boy,
0: not me. You like mirrors, says I. I like reflections, long as they aren't mine. What do you think of the picture yourself? Mm, in life, I tend to forget the worst of the bad moments but on your own movies, the bad moments are unforgettable. That first scene in the park, for instance, when I think of it, my flesh crawls. The whole sequence has no flavor. I said, it's true that it has a different look from the rest of the film. Oh, Orson said, it's just like any old Columbia program picture, you could clip it into any bee. Even Rita doesn't look like she does in the rest of the picture. Well, Orson was right. This sequence is perhaps the worst in any Wells-directed movie. He fought to have it cut out before release. Now, here, before we go back to the conversation, <clears throat> are the excerpts from a nine-page memo to Mr. Cohen from Mr. Wells written after Orson had seen Cohen's edited version of the picture.
1: And getting into more trouble.
0: Here it is. The preview title music was written by a first-class composer, George Antai. Although not written for our picture at all, this temporary title music had an atmosphere of darkness and menace combined with something lush and romantic which made it acceptable. The only musical idea which seems to have occurred to this present composer, he was talking about Heinz Rumheld, is the rather weary one of using a popular song, the theme, in as many arrangements as possible. Throughout, we have musical references to Please Don't Kiss Me for almost every bridge and also for a great deal of the background material. The tune is pleasing and may do very well on the hit parade, but Lady from Shanghai is not a musical comedy. Mr. Romeheld is an ardent devotee of an old-fashioned type of scoring now referred to in our business as Disney. In other words, if somebody falls down, he makes a falling down sound in the orchestra, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. If the lab had scratched initials and phone numbers all over the negative, I couldn't be unhappier with the results. Just before I left to go abroad, I asked Vive, he's talking about Viola Lawrence, the editor, to make a cut which would involve dropping the near accident with the taxicab, and also quite a bit of dialogue. I am convinced that this would have been an excellent cut, saving much-needed footage in the slow opening sequence. This, of course, was not done, accounting for the main weaknesses of the film's opening reel. Orson's memo goes on. There is nothing in the fact of Rita's diving to warrant a big orchestral crescendo. What does matter is Rita's beauty, the evil overtones suggested by Grisby's character and Michael's bewilderment, Any or all of these items might have inspired the music. Instead, the dive is treated as though it were a major climax or some antic moment in a silly symphony, a pratfall by Pluto the pup or a wild jump into space by Donald the duck. There is no sound atmosphere on the boat. A little wind and water is sorely missed. There's no point in photographing a scene on a real boat if you make it sound as though it all happened in front of a process screen. At the start of the picnic sequence in the temporary score, we used a very curious, sexy Latin American strain. This has been replaced with a corny, dramatic sequel, bad stock stuff. This sort of music destroys that quality of strangeness, which is exactly what might have saved Lady from Shanghai from being just another Who Done It. There's a big musical outburst after Grisby's, Grisby's line, I want you to kill him. This is absurd. The Hawaiian guitar music, which comes out of the radio, was supposed to be corny enough to make a certain satirical point. As it stands now, it's on about the same level as the rest of the scoring. Nobody in the audience could possibly suspect that we're kidding. The Aquarian scene needs more echo. Please Don't Kiss Me is in again. A bad dubbing job and poor scoring has destroyed the character of Michael's run down the pier. From the gunshot through to the phone call, a careful pattern of voices had been built up with the expenditure of much time and effort. For some reason, this has all been junked in favor of a vague hullabaloo. As a result, the whole sequence seems dull. The audience should feel at this point, along with Michael, that maybe they're going crazy. The new dubbing job can only make them feel that maybe they're going to sleep. The gun battle with the breaking mirrors must not be backed with music. That was in the italics in the memo. The closing music again makes reference to Please Don't Kiss Me. This finale is obvious to the point of vulgarity and does incalculable injury to the finish of the picture. Every single one of Orson Welles' points was ignored. Back to the conversation now, I said to him, but the cutting was mostly yours, wasn't it? Orson said, pretty much. The most interesting sequence in the funhouse has all but vanished. I was up every night from 10.30 until 5 in the morning for a week painting that funhouse. Cyril Connolly came one night, helped me. I had all kinds of strange people lending me a hand. This was the big tour de force scene. All you get now is one bad long shot, which I was going to cut because it was banal compared to the way the sequence had been built. Too crazy for its time. What's all that about? yelled Harry Cohen. Yanked it out. People would have remembered it much more than the mirrors at the end. It was much more of a tour de force. I said, is the proverb in the picture, one who follows his nature follows his original nature in the end. Is it really Chinese or an Orson Welles proverb? Orson said, Chinese. Is it true, I said, that you moved a fishing village and rebuilt it in a more accessible spot? Orson, we didn't build a thing. We used Acapulco just as we found it. I said, was the love scene in the aquarium meant to relate back to the sharks story? Orson, next question.
1: So money doesn't interest you, Michael. Are you independently wealthy? I'm independent.
0: Why did you shoot it there? In the aquarium? Why not? And the Chinese theater? Well, that was a real sequence before Cohen got at it with his scissors. Same as the funhouse. Now it's very bitty. Why did you cripple Bannister so completely, both legs? Because Everett Sloan was basically a radio actor. He'd never really learned to move. He was like a marionette. That was okay for Bernstein and Kane, but it didn't seem to me that a marionette would be a great criminal lawyer. So I made him an elaborate sort of cripple, and of course he loved it. All actors like to play cripples. I said, both the lawyer in um, Lady from Shanghai and the one you play in the trial are rather shady, disreputable figures. Orson, I'd like to do 20 pictures taking the mickey out of the lawyers. Do you have little respect for the law, I said. Well, we might say that one's respect is high enough for the law and low enough for the lawyers and the doctors, most of them. Why? They're human. It figures that not many are going to be really up to their calling. Kafka, of course, hates the law itself. What I hate are the abuses.
1: You call yourself independent. In the
0: see lady Shanghai. from Shanghai, I said, you have the judge playing himself at a chess game, then you cut to the empty courtroom, an interesting juxtaposition of images. Orson said, I get a little nervous when I think about that. We're right on the jagged edge of symbolism there, I'm afraid. I said, you staged a mockery of a trial in that picture with an exceptionally stupid judge. Orson, judges in our American system are political appointments. A judge in a criminal case which calls for the least knowledge of the law, is likely to be an old political hack. I say, and that terrible jury sneezing and coughing all the time, what do you think of trial by jury? Orson, oh, I could do lots of trials and make them all look idiotic, but that doesn't mean I think the system is wrong. I said, somehow I thought the advocate whom you played in the trial was sort of evil incarnate. Orson said, I don't think I've ever projected a character who was evil incarnate, not even Iago, because he's merely destructive and mischievous to the point of sin. I don't believe in such a thing as evil incarnate. I said, the lawyer's pretty evil. Wells said, he's pretty corrupt. I believe in the existence of evil. I believe in good and evil. I'm not one of those people who don't believe in evil. And I've got Jake in The Other Side of the Wind carrying on about that at great length, but in his terms. I really don't believe that evil or good is ever incarnate. The other side of the wind that Wells was talking about is a film that he shot but was never edited, although there's still hope that maybe one day it'll see the the light of day. Um, and Jake was played in that film by John Huston. I said to Orson, probably the slowest dolly shot I've ever seen takes place when Rita Hayworth and Everett Sloan are sitting in a corridor before the trial. I had to look at the edges of the screen to see if it was really moving. Orson said, that doesn't speak well for the film when you start studying the edges of the screen. And of course, he screamed with laughter after he said that. And I did too. Uh, I said, people sometimes look at your films and say, God, what an insane, great shot. But when I've expressed something like that to you, Your blank look shows me that clearly to you the shot was normal, or rather not unusual, simply the way you saw it. Orson said, I like it when you answer your own questions. I said, I'm right, aren't I? Orson said, I don't often try to be crazy, no.
1: One who loves passionately is cured of love
0: in the end. I said, but most people think just the opposite of your work. Orson said, sure. They think it's deliberate eccentricity, virtuoso hamming. That implies a certain strain. I just do what comes naturally. It's like that terribly old corny joke. A fella goes to a doctor and says, you know, doctor, I have these terrible headaches in the morning. Every morning after I get up and vomit and brush my teeth and have breakfast, I get this headache. The doctor says, what? Sure, the fellow says. After I get up and vomit and brush my teeth, I get this headache. You mean, says the doctor, you vomit every morning? Sure, says the fellow. Doesn't everybody? Well, that's the point. That's my answer to those crazy shots. Doesn't everybody? I said to Orson, somebody said to Chaplin once, do you never have any interesting camera angles? And Chaplin said, I don't need interesting camera angles. I am interesting. Orson said he was right. I said, Chaplin also said that comedy was life in long shot and tragedy was life in close-up. Orson said, what does that mean? I said, well, the theory being that when you show a man walking down the street in long shot and he slips on a banana peel, it's funny. But when you get in close, it stops being funny because the pain becomes apparent.
1: Listen, when you hear what I got for you, you'll say you bought it Sid, we've worked a lot of cases together. I'll be sorry if we have... To Fair enough,
0: Orson said, but I think... If we want to really be accurate, comedy is a medium full shot. The true long shot is tragedy again. You know, there are performers, Jacques Tati, for instance, who are only good in full figure. Move in on Tati and he literally disappears. You like him, I said. Yes, in a very nervous way, always waiting and hoping for him to be just that little bit more professional, which is most unfair, of course, from a congenital amateur like myself, but it takes one to know one. I think he has a sort of genius at moments, some kind of real greatness, but you just never know from one minute to the next what the action is going to be like. Jacques Tati, of course, is the great French comedian who made Mr. Hulot's Holiday in Mon Oncle. I said, speaking of long shots, Orson, the last shot of you in Chimes at Midnight is a good example, that small figure lumbering away. Orson said, that was dangerous. The rejected figure scuffling away into the sunset, but there wasn't any other way. Most of my close-ups are made because I'm forced to. It's always better to avoid them when you can. A long playing full shot is what always separates the men from the boys. Anybody can make movies with a pair of scissors and a two-inch lens. that bears repeating. A long playing full shot is what always separates the men from the boys. Anybody can make movies with a pair of scissors and a two-inch lens. I I said to him, Preminger, Otto Preminger, once said that ideally if he could, he would never cut. He would like a picture all in one take. Orson said, that will come when tape is perfected and they stop putting film in the camera. I, I saw that in a kind of insane flash of ignorance when I first started. I said to Tolan, isn't it basically ridiculous that the film is in the camera? And he said, yes, eventually it will just be a sort of electric eye. We won't be carting the film around or the motor. We'll just be carrying the lens. I said to Orson, there's a line in... Uh, The lady from Shanghai, quote, when I start out to make a fool of myself, there's little enough that can stop me. Do you feel that's been true in your life? Have there been times when you feel you've made a fool of yourself? Orson said, "Mm, that's one of those searching, penetrating questions I thought we'd avoid. You don't want to talk about it, I said. There have been so many occasions, I don't know how to begin. Regrets, I said. Millions. But you know, I like the people who are ready and willing to make fools of themselves, being, as I am, a full member of the fraternity. Still, there are lots of nice felines who just can't. Felines, I said. Well, if spiritually you're part of the cat family, you can't bear to be laughed at. You have to pretend when you fall down that you really wanted to be down there just to see what's under the sofa. The rest of us don't at all mind being laughed at. I said, then you're canine. I'm a comic anyway, even if I don't wag my tail very often. I said, isn't that willingness to be a damned fool a kind of courage? Orson said, just the nature of the beast. Like people with tape recorders and searching questions. You can't help it. It's your nature. (laughs) In your pictures, you do things, I said, that only you could get away with. Orson said, and don't, and laughed loudly. I said, do you sometimes feel like a martyr, Orson? He said, they have to really be shooting at you with arrows before you have the right to come on like a martyr. I mean real arrows. I said, you mean like St. Sebastian? Sure. And even at your low points, it never becomes a temptation? Orson said, martyrdom? I haven't the vocation for it.
1: Give him a drink, George, and don't look so chocked. Michael may not be in the social register, but then neither are you anymore. Is this what you folks do for amusement in the evenings? Sit around toasting marshmallows and calling each other names? Sure, if you're so anxious for me to join the game, I'd be glad to. I can think of a few names I'd like to be calling you myself. Oh, but Michael, that isn't fair. You're bound to lose the contest. We'll have to give you a handicap, Michael. <laughs> you should know what George knows about me, for instance, if you really... And now
0: here's a few st- more stories about the making of the film and th- things, about, uh, things that surrounded the making of the film. Um, the scene where they are lying in hammocks talking about sharks and how the sharks ate each ate each other is uh, one of the most chilling um, anecdotes ever told in a movie, and uh, it's one of the best scenes in the movie, as a matter of fact, and obviously relates to a much bigger world that Orson was talking about. I said to him, do you think that um, the world is broken up into sharks and... Uh, and um, you know, non-sharks, and he said, no, there's a lot of other animals, he said, in the world. Harry Cohen was the head of Columbia at that point, owned the studio, uh, a tyrannical fellow, um, but admired by some of the most uh, independent filmmakers, like Fritz Lang, who who admired him, and told the story about one time uh, Cohen was watching... uh, a movie, and the picture ended, and Cohen stood up and said, the picture's exactly 16 minutes too long. And Fritz Lang said, well, Harry, now, why do you say 16? Why don't you say 15 or 14? Why exactly 16? And the answer was, Cohen said, because 16 minutes ago, my ass started to itch, and I looked at my watch. uh, And uh, that's how he knew. So somebody then said, that's great. The, The whole of Columbia is wired to Harry Cohen's ass.
1: I believe you now. Yours is the first time anyone ever thought enough of you to call you a shark. You're a good liar, you'd be flattered. <laughs> Mrs. Bannister I'm sure
0: I don't know Glenn Anders who's in this movie who plays plays one of the complicated heavies uh, was a favorite actor of Orson's Glenn Anders he had seen him in a movie by a French director named Harry Durast French American um, called Laughter and he remembered him from that and cast him he thought he was a wonderful actor (laughs) Um, the book if I Die Before I Wake, which became The Lady from Shanghai, was, at the time that uh, Orson mentioned it to Cohen, was owned by another producer named William Castle, a fellow who Orson knew and was friends with, and so um, it was not difficult to persuade uh, Castle that Orson would be a good director for it. Castle had wanted to direct it himself and eventually did become a director, a kind of a kind of road company Alfred Hitchcock doing sort of suspense and horror pictures. Um, I first saw The Lady from Shanghai, I don't know, in my teens. And as often, as o- as always with an Orson Welles film, but particularly with this one, um, and again with Touch of Evil, I was so taken with the way the film was made that I had no idea what it was about. I think I had to see it three or four times before I figured out what it was about. It was so... Um, unusual and interesting to watch the way it was made and uh that's had an influence on me of course the black and white is brilliant uh although it goes in and out because of the editing process but um it uh is extraordinary um i don't know that it had an influence on me specifically uh, but certainly uh Certainly, the unusual way it's told um, impressed me, and um, um, I think it had an. It, it was it was it falls in the kind of classic film noir uh, period when it was, which uh, is post-war, around the same time as Out of the Past and all the other classic film noirs, and it's right up there among the great ones. Um, at the time that the film was made, according to Wells, uh, he and Rita Hayworth, who'd been married, she was his second wife. They'd already had a daughter named Rebecca, which was his second daughter. But the marriage hadn't been working out, although uh, they had been married about three or four or five years at that point. Um, He had um, seen her pinup, of course, the famous pinup that was the most popular pinup uh, for servicemen in World War II, and having seen the pin-up, he announced to somebody, I'm going to marry her, and uh, did. Uh, but the marriage was failing. They hadn't been living together, and uh, it was uh, Rita's attempt to uh, reconcile. Uh, it was because of that that the, that, the, that the two of them made this film. Um, it, didn't help to, it didn't help the marriage, and it ended after the film. The yacht on which they were shooting um, was actually belonged to Errol Flynn. It was his yacht. And uh, he and uh, Orson were friends. Um, The narration that Orson does in the film, again, was not in the original script. It was added afterward, um, apparently to make things clearer. Um, The reviews of the picture originally were poor. Uh, As Orson said, (laughs) people would sort of change the subject and talk about something else to avoid his hurting his feelings. Um, The interesting thing is that Orson wanted to work on location and some of the best material in the movie, Uh, the whole Mexico Acapulco sequence, is some of the best stuff in the picture room um, with the columns and the pillars and the band and the chiaroscuro photography. All of that inspired Wells. It's the kind of thing that um, that Hitchcock didn't particularly like. Hitchcock didn't like locations because he couldn't control them as well. Orson liked locations for that very reason, because accidents would happen, things would happen that he hadn't planned, things that inspired him to come up with a solution. Orson was very inspired by challenges. Um, and that was the difference between Hitchcock and Wells. Uh, one of the main differences was that Hitchcock liked to, didn't like surprises, liked to have everything planned out, and liked to work on the soundstage where everything was very controllable. Uh, Orson really liked the opposite, although he did shoot soundstages often. Nevertheless, what he really liked was location work, where you didn't know quite what was going to happen. Um, the music in this picture must have really upset Orson. It's one of the things he always talked about most. And, um, particularly, this is particularly ironic considering how important, uh, music was in Orson's films, earlier films, the ones before this. And, um, what a, um important part, he played Orson in, in bringing one of the most important composers in the history of the screen to the screen, which is Bernard Herrmann, who um, composed the music for Citizen Kane and The Magnificent Amersons, Orson's first two films, as well as many of uh, Alfred Hitchcock's films. Uh, Hitchcock kind of adopted Bernard Herrmann, and he became more identified with Hitchcock than with Wells, but in truth, Bernard Herrmann began with Orson Welles. Uh, on the radio for a n- number of years, and then his first two uh, his first two soundtracks were for uh, Wells films. And we could certainly use Bernard Herman on this picture. After the but failure, bo- box office failure of Citizen Kane and uh, and the Magnificent Ambersons and the debacle of It's All True, which he went down to South America to film. Uh, Wells didn't work for about three years as a director and finally came back and made a, a, a film noir, a kind of thriller called The Stranger, which he made into, for um, Sam Spiegel and uh, was released through Universal. It was a quite a successful picture. It made its money back and made a profit. And as Orson said, he could have gone The rest of his career making films like that but it wasn't what he wanted to do he went back to the theater started to do around the world in 80 days ran out of money and around the world in 80 days was known to be one of his greatest stage productions even though it failed ran out of money and made a deal with harry cohen as i've already told you um to do this film lady from shanghai um Cohen was inclined to use Orson at that point because uh, The Stranger had been a success, and this was in that mode, so Hollywood always goes with success, and uh, he was uh, now uh, usable. Um, this picture, however, didn't come together as well as everybody would hoped, and uh, they, the studio didn't know what to do with it. They were worried about hurting their star, um, who had um, cut her hair, and died it for this picture and so they actually held it for two years before they released it orson in the meantime had a failure with around the world in 80 days had had a failure with around the world in 80 days and then decided that he was going to try to do a very inexpensive but uh honest uh, adaptation of shakespeare's Macbeth, which he shot for very little money in about 23 days on old uh, western Roy Rogers, Gene Autry sets over at Republic. And uh, that, unfortunately, was also not a success. And that was his last film in Hollywood for 10 years. They both, both Lady from Shanghai and Macbeth, I think, came out the same year. Two bombs, so to speak, financially speaking.
1: Make it late tonight. What for? $5,000. I don't take a girl and a sailor on quite a nice little trip.
0: He went to Europe, made a few brilliant films, including um, *Othello* and a, a very um, truncated film called *Mr. Arkadin* or *Confidential Report*. And um, then came back to America in the mid, mid to mid 50s and uh, did some work for Desi and then did *Touch of Evil*, which is, I guess, the last great film noir made. In um, in the Lady from Shanghai, Let me know. it's one of the few times, and probably the only time now that I think of it, where Orson Welles played a sort of traditional romantic lead, who's a bit of a screw up, yes, but uh, and and anti-heroic at times, but nevertheless, it's um, it was unusual for Welles to play that kind of part. He usually played the heavy.
1: Uh, what you're reading there? Am I supposed to have written it? <laughs> your confession this is the easiest five thousand you're ever gonna earn fella why don't you do it yourself commit suicide me don't be silly (laughs) suicide is against the law we're not going to break the law this is going to be murder it's
0: going to be legal the film has a very dark edge to it the photography and the way it's constructed the um the uh, chiaroscuro photography the black and white the shadows, the ominous feeling. This is very much uh, very much in the tradition of, uh, of the stranger, but also very much the kind of movie that uh, would become more and more popular in the end of the 40s. Pictures like uh, The Third Man is unthinkable. Pictures like The Third Man are unthinkable without the example of the lady from Shanghai. And in fact, I would say the lady from Shanghai had an enormous uh, impact on thrillers, films noir, um, and um, not just in the photography, but also in the general atmosphere of evil and foreboding that, uh, that the picture uh, uh, conveys. And scenes like the scene in the aquarium... Uh, between Wells and uh, Rita Hayworth um, are the sort of set pieces that many directors in in film noir uh, looked for and tried to imitate. Um, Of course, uh, Wells had a way of doing these things that was inimitable and uh, memorable. I've
1: never seen an aquarium.
0: The lady from Shanghai at uh, at the time was uh, was as well as I said uh, considered a, a, a kind of a disaster, and uh, it wasn't until many years later, I would say, uh, not until the '60s, did people start to think of it as an as an important film. I don't care where it is, Michael. Just take me there. Only in the last 20 or 30 years has it been accepted as, um, well, let me put it this way. It's only since Orson has died that a lot of his work has been taken more seriously than it ever was while he was alive. But in Europe, certainly the lady from Shanghai always had a, had a high reputation and the French loved it. And uh, so did a lot of uh, European countries, critics, but it was never a success. Today, it's considered a classic
1: money you didn't sound like like you you're not going to try anything foolish
0: are you uh, among the other people who were uncredited on the screenplay orson took credit for the writing and the uh, direction but um there is uh some report that uh william castle fletcher markell and charles Lederer, among others worked on uh, on bits and pieces of the script and there are um, there were three photographers: Charles Lawton Jr., who uh, gets credit and uncredited, Rudolf Matte, who Morrison mentioned, Rudy Matty, and uh, Joseph Walker. The original version, the original running time, time of the movie in rough cut, was 155 minutes. And the release version was 86. So it's um, an hour cut out
1: understand michael what were you doing with george and sausalito says mr grisby wants to spend the night on the yacht and asked me to drive him there and that's what i killed him you see with the rough tide there in the bay they wouldn't recover the body if there was one
0: you don't But by, by shooting in the aquarium which was in san francisco um and uh There's a few other places like Chinatown and so on that are typical of San Francisco. Although the picture doesn't really look like the San Francisco we know, Um, follows the old rule. Shooting in a place like the Aquarium follows Hitchcock's old rule about whenever you go to a a place, um, shoot your scenes at locations that are identified with that location, uh, the f- more famous the better, was Hitchcock's theory. So Orson played into that in those in that case, uh, since the Aquarium and uh, Chinatown are both uh, identified with San Francisco.
1: A deliberate intention of fool, uh, that's the worst kind, didn't you know?
0: Yes, my beloved, my beloved fool, I know.
1: I don't think there's anybody home, just Broom. Mr. Bannister's in the city, and Mrs. Bannister, I think, went to the movies. Better wait for me in the kitchen. Make some coffee, we'll both need it.
0: There were so many things I learned from him, In uh, and he was an inspiration to to me personally, as he was to so many filmmakers who didn't know him, who just were inspired by his work. He was an inspiration to me personally because I was fortunate enough, very fortunate, to have spent time with him and to, you know, um, to gain from my access to him enormously beyond anything I could give back.
1: You see, I'm a Snoopy kind of a guy. I find things up.
0: In terms of attitude toward life and art and uh, integrity and uh, all those other complicated things that life is full of
1: yeah Framing for a murder you're gonna commit well let's
0: talk it over tomorrow huh when you'll be playing dead and somebody else Ted de Courcia was in this of course played the killer in the naked city around the, uh, the same year this was released but he'd done this earlier
1: if you insist
0: It's important to remember that Wells <clears throat> was a was an expert at lighting. That on the during the making of Citizen Kane, uh, which was his first film. He didn't realize that uh, telling the crew where to put the lights was not the director's job, but rather the, uh, the uh, lighting cameraman, they call him in, uh, in, uh, in England. We call them uh, directors of photography. Um, anyway. It didn't occur to Orson that that was the job of the cameraman or lighting cameraman or uh, director of photography. And so, during the first few days of shooting uh, Citizen Kane, Orson was telling the crew how to light it. And um, according to Orson, Greg Tolan was going around behind his back fixing the lights a little bit cleaning it up for movies and also telling everybody not to tell Orson that it it wasn't his job. Anyway, eventually somebody did tell him, and Tolan, Greg Tolan, one of the great legendary American cameramen, uh, was actually very upset that somebody had told Orson that this wasn't what was the normal way of shooting because, because, said Greg Tolan, the only way you can ever learn something is from someone who doesn't know what not to do, and so since Wells didn't know what not to do, uh, Toland found that very interesting and very um, educational. <clears throat> in fact, it's Orson sort of what what it's what Orson referred to in the conversation I read to you uh, as he, it's his um, his amateur status. That made him uh, anything- such a revolutionary, and so uh, made his movies so fresh. He he didn't think he was a professional, but he didn't think that way.
1: What are you doing? Getting blood all over the floor of the car. My blood. It's perfect. If you shot me, there would be
0: blood. Glenn Anders, the the performance that Glenn Anders gives in this is really the performance of his career, and uh, to wipe the evidence, eh? it's it to it's so free and kind of eccentric, free in its eccentricity and eccentric in its freedom, that reminds me of the way that Orson works with actors. He makes them feel so extraordinarily comfortable that uh, they don't worry about doing anything. He can, he can, they can, he makes them go as far as as he can and um, Usually comes up. It usually comes up with an extraordinarily unusual performance, and that's one of the ways he got this really amazing performance from Glenn Anders. Who, I love that scene about target practice. Got some target practice. <laughs> shots like the dolly shots and crane shots that Orson has in his pictures. And, of course, we're not seeing this cut. We're not seeing the lady from Shanghai cut exactly the way he wanted to, hardly exactly the way he wanted to. So it's uh, it's difficult to know exactly what he meant. You just have to go with with what we've got, because there's nothing else to go by. There's no footage left, no outtakes. I want to speak to Mrs. Bannister.
1: What? It's me, Bruce. Get down to the office. Montgomery Street. You was framed. Grisby didn't want to disappear. He just wanted an alibi. And you're it. A... You're the fool guy. Grisby's gone down there to kill Bannister. Now! Hello.
0: I think, you know, Orson never did anything conventionally. He wasn't a conventional thinker, and most uh, studio thinking is conventional. Even in the in the in the good old studio days, so to speak, the studio system days, good old days in the sense that there was a lot of really brilliant people working at that period. Um, Orson just was uh, was different. He he. He didn't look at things the same way. It's like that story he told about the doctors, you know, doesn't everybody, he didn't see himself as being unusual, but this is not the way most people saw things, and um, I think that led to difficulties at the studio, but at various studios, but Orson said that in the studio system was actually better for him than the days of The Independent, which began really in the late 50s, 60s. Uh, because when a studio would make 30 or f- maybe 40 or 50 films in, in one year, uh, they could afford one, you know, off-the-wall Orson Welles movie. But when they were a bunch of independent producers, uh, all making their own one independent film or two a year, that somehow the whole idea of there being that extra film that you could make, just didn't matter if you lost money with it because it was... Gonna be an Orson Welles film. And might be worth losing money with it. Uh that 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 went away, and uh, so Orson felt like his career was in better shape during the studio system. Ironically, even though, even though there, there's Richard Wilson right there, standing there in the scene between uh, Everett Sloane and Rita Hayworth, and the uh, courtroom. That was Richard putting on his hat and going down the stairs. And this is the scene I was talking about where the camera dollies in slowly. But anyway, in uh, in relation to um, Wells being out of step with the general way that pictures were done, that's just the way it is. And uh, of course this led to problems um, more and more in the after the, after the studio system collapsed at the end of the 50s. In fact, Touch of Evil was his last film for a studio. Um, and that was at the 1958. And the studio system pretty much ended by
1: 1962. I, uh, I hear that Galloway is going to say that Michael took George's corpse into the city in our speedboat. But he didn't
0: we can prove George uh, of all the directors I met the, the uh, classic directors and Orson wasn't at that point considered to be a classic director at the end of the 60s he was um, considered a maverick but now looking back of course he's he's a maverick in a in a in a in a classical tradition Um... I think my relationship with Orson was the closest of any of my relationships with any of the directors I got to know the um that were not of my generation. He um by the time I met him he was in his early 50s and uh I was in my late 20s and um so he was closer in age to me than any of the other great directors i had uh, i had met uh quite a bit closer in age um and so that probably helped but orson had a kind of a kind of youthful fresh youthfulness that that uh, never went away even when he even when he got to be uh in his late 60s and before he died at 70 which was young but uh physically he wasn't in the best of shape but you know his mind and his personality was always very youthful very uh very fresh and very unwilling to just take uh to take conventional wisdom um as uh as gospel that wasn't his way at all it was always you know how can we do it differently how can we approach this in a non-cliched way? And uh, it was—it's uh, what made—it's what was his particular glory, as well as his curse, among the studios. But it certainly uh, uh, redounds to his glory now. He once said to me, before he died, about a year, just before he died, about a maybe six months or a year. He said, "God, how they'll love me when I'm dead." And um, to a degree, that's what's happened. The enshrinement of Orson Welles has really, in this country, didn't really begin till after he passed away in 1985.
1: You've got to trust him,
0: Michael. Why? Why should I trust him?
1: Because it's your only chance. Because I want you to. i will have to do for a reason.
0: Orson felt that by having three daughters as opposed to sons, that uh, the cards were stacked against him. I said, why? He said, well, I never understood women. I don't know that that's entirely true. He said he certainly had his... He certainly had his, his um, certainly had a share of women, uh, it, 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 but uh, evidently uh, he did not have long relationships that uh, continued with women. They would be briefer than that. Um I think he was very ambivalent. Um uh, not just about women but about men too. Uh, uh he didn't approach things in a uh, women or men in a conventional way. And um his relationships were turbulent.
1: Very well, in the interest of saving time, we'll proceed. As I'm sure Officer Peters is most anxious to go home to his wife and family before returning to duty. Now then, Officer Peters, except for the blood, the clothes were dry. Yes, sir. They were dry. Yet the defendant stated in his confession that he threw the body into the bay. Your Honor, the district attorney isn't cross examining. He's making speeches. That simply isn't so. I move for the declaration of mistrial. These are some that the the jury is being prejudiced. These are some of the great.
0: Here's this uh, um, amazing courtroom scene, which is directed sort of slightly farcically.
1: Then I'll decide on the objection. (laughs) (laughs) Objection sustained. Your witness, Mr. Bannister. No questions? Except, yes, Officer Peters, uh, I don't wish to keep you from your wife and children uh, any more than the district attorney who was so concerned about them a moment ago. but uh,
0: Uh, The judge in The Lady from Shanghai is the uh, same actor, Erskine Sanford, who played the kind of befuddled... Dickensian uh, newspaper publisher that precedes Charles Foster Kane at the uh, Enquirer the one that he kind of kicks out of his office this uh, prosecutor uh, in this pinstripe suit the word is that he was encouraged to imitate uh, the speaking style of Nelson Rockefeller Who'd been responsible for Orson agreeing to make a film in South America in 1942-43, which effectively screwed up his career for about four or five years? I don't know if this is true about Rockefeller, but that's the word.
1: I've never seen anything like that before. I always thought he was smart. I don't come any smarter. <laughs> You ain't kidding. You solemnly swear the evidence you're about to give in this case be. The well, Orson talks. did
0: a lot of writing, which he, so he seemed to enjoy that. But I think he liked making the picture on the set. You know, working with the actors—that was his favorite part of the process. I think. Um, I think so. I think he enjoyed most. Working with the actors and uh, and creating an atmosphere in which they would feel comfortable and. Uh, and uh, kind of it was an inv- it, it was an inspiring time in uh, in the in the life of a movie the the time it gets made and the time he was most interested in was the actual making of the film the shooting of it I think that's the time that his attention was most engaged and that he was most uh, inventive most creative
1: to quit yes. Did you know, Mr. Bannister, that right after the murders, we oh, sorry. right after the murders, we found.
0: I think the Orson was uh, <clears throat> was brilliant in everything he did. Uh, I think he was uh, the greatest at, as a, as a director and actor. Uh, he was a, a good writer, and, but uh, I think um, I think he excelled as a as a director and uh, and as an actor. He didn't really love himself much as an actor, uh, but uh, you can't get much better performance than the one he gave in Citizen Kane. Um, As a director, though, he had this, you know, a director is basically the first audience for a movie. He's the one that the actors are playing to. And uh, when the actors know what a director might like or might not like, what his personality is. Of course, they play into that personality. They play for that. Actors want to be liked. They want compliments. They want you to tell them that they're doing a good job. So uh, Orson, there just couldn't be a more receptive, a more wonderful audience than Orson Welles. He was... um, (laughs) He was so intense, so much a part of what you were doing, you were so into what you were doing, watching you closely, and and, and kind of being with you and then asking you to do it this way or that way or another way. He made you really better than you are, better than you could be, because he made you feel completely free and gave you an enormous amount of encouragement and a kind of freedom, really. Yeah, that's it. To to do whatever came to your mind, if, and not to be afraid that he wouldn't like it or that he'd attack you or whatever. On the contrary, he was so extraordinarily giving and encouraging as a director that it's impossible for me to think of anybody ever being better than Orson uh, in terms of working with actors. He just, he, it was just this wonderful. Conspiratorial quality that he also conveyed—that uh, that's memorable and that makes actors feel warm and uh, and comfortable—is this feeling that uh, you, you you're not going to do anything wrong. He might ask you to do it again, but it won't be because it's wrong. It just he might want it a different way. So the whole idea of right and wrong disappears. You just feel liberated. And uh, I worked with him as an actor and the other side of the wind. And um, I've just never felt that way before, and um, I know that other actors, just like Janet Lee or Dennis Weaver, that I've talked to, or Chuck Heston, they, there's this kind of freedom that he 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 gives you, uh, that basically you are doing what he wants, but he maneuvers you in such an easy way that, uh, and he and he he's so generous in his compliments and he's so encouraging to you to be yourself that a, a kind of wonderful combination of yourself and what Orson wants comes out and and sometimes it's 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 something totally different than either he or you thought it would be but that's because you're both working toward the same goal which is to make it the best it can be was
1: subsequently murdered i object does counsel deny the oh. Overruled. Does counsel deny the that the butler broom is the detective broom used by him in divorce cases, Mrs. Bannister? Can you think of any reason why your husband would want to hire a divorce detective other than to watch you? I object. Objection sustained. As a matter of fact, didn't you and your husband have an argument about your showing an infatuation for O'Hara? We did. The lady
0: from Shanghai, although it was shot, it wasn't withheld was for two years. The, or actually when Orson and and Rita Hayworth were divorced on November 11th 1947 it was six months before the lady from Shanghai opened because it didn't open until may 30th 1948 six months after they were divorced so the general word was that it was the picture which was under a cloud which had broken them up but According to Orson, they had already been broken up, and this was an attempt to bring them back together by Rita, but it didn't work.
1: No. No further questions. Your witness, Mr. Bannister. No questions.
0: Orson had a remarkable sense of humor. He was uh, he was very funny in life, and uh, in a kind of satiric, sardonic, way, uh, or sometimes just silly. He could be very silly and funny, and um, giddy even. But by and large, the humor was dark, and uh, sardonic, satiric. Um, in the trial sequence, which is played sort of deadpan with a kind of farcical attitude, although it's um, it never goes over the top, uh, it, it's it's Orson, as he says, taking the mickey out of lawyers and about the whole process. Not that he didn't believe in the system, but he also didn't believe that it, you couldn't make fun of it.
1: coming out now. Oh, thank you, opposite. He uh,
0: he felt awkward about the chess game aspect of it because uh, he thought that was a little bit too close to symbolism, which is something he tried to avoid. Um, he on the stage he had he had been successful with an, a couple of comedies, including Horse Eats Hat, which was a farce that was one of his biggest successes in at the Mercury Theatre in the thirties. But somehow, s- sadly, although he prepared or planned a couple of comedies, in, in film he never made a comedy. Uh, although there are funny sequences in a number of his films, he never really made comedy as such. And he regretted it because he liked comedy.
1: Our little visits will be great fun. I'm going to ask for a stay of execution. Not really, be granted. I want you to live as long as possible before you die. You're talking kind of tough, aren't you, Mr. Bannister?
0: I've got an edge. Orson Welles first made his name for himself in the radio and in theater, New York theater. Uh, radio, of course, was an extraordinarily dramatic and popular medium at the uh, in the 30s, and Orson's voice was uh, one of the most famous um, on the radio. He had his own... He was doing *The Shadow* and many other uh, sort of somewhat anonymous appearances. But then, after the success of the theater, the Mercury Theater uh, on uh, on Broadway, he uh, was moved to the radio, and they had a sustaining show—a show without um, sponsors—which was uh, not uncommon in radio. which started around the end of 37, early 38, I think it was, 38. And um, uh, they did a few shows, and one of of them, the Halloween show in 1938, um, created history, uh, radio history and world history, uh, because uh, it scared half the country into thinking that there was an invasion from Mars. It was the War of the Worlds broadcast. Which... uh, Was uh, so much of a so infamous and and, uh, such a a big event that it it pulled news. uh, Had new there was news about it. On it was in it was front page headlines uh, across the country and across the world. That this um, actor had uh, frightened uh, half the nation. with this fake invasion of Princeton by uh, by Martians. As a result of this broadcast, um, they finally got a sponsor, Campbell's Soup, and within a week or so, it was no longer the Mercury Theatre on the air, but the Campbell Playhouse. we got to think of something. And, um, hey, that's jury. Uh, Orson was probably one of the two or three most important, I would say he was the most important director in the history of radio and contributed the most and has, and his shows hold up the best. Um, it's a pity that so many of them are unavailable. And the War of the Worlds broadcast, which is exciting, but not, he didn't feel it was one of his best. That, unfortunately, is one of the only ones that's, that anybody uh, talks about. But, in fact, there are so many shows that Wells did for radio that are brilliant. And uh, it's too bad they can't be uh, more accessible to people. And It's like some of them are like an Orson Welles movie. They have such visual uh, impact uh, and such oral impact in the way he would do it that... Um, It's, uh, they're miniature classics, uh, so many of them. I think when the initial heat of filming ended, uh, I think that Orson did lose some interest. Um, he'd already seen the film so fully that to continue to sit and try to put it together and all that with difficulty sometimes, <clears throat> I don't think it interested him as much. But on the other hand, he would spend weeks and months working on the editing of films. Uh, certainly Citizen Kane he did, but later on I saw him working, you know, really long hours on F for Fake or... other side of the wind or don quixote or all the some of the films he didn't complete so it's not right to say that he lost interest but sometimes he was running trying to get money for other things and um have to do an acting job to make some money because he hadn't made any money as a director because usually he didn't keep his salary as a director or there wasn't any because he was making it independently so on spending all his acting money to finance his films. It was, um, as he said, he said, of course I'm crazy to have done that, but that's what he did, it kept kept a kind of integrity. Nevertheless, sometimes he would run off after a picture was finished because he had to earn a living, um, or some other project came up that he would have to follow through on. And I don't think he anticipated how much the pictures would be recut. Well, I think the two writers he liked the most, he always spoke of the most, were Isak Dinesen, the, the um, Danish writer, um, and um, Robert Graves, the English-Irish writer. Um, he mentioned them most often and um, quoted them most often. I think those were his favorite serious writers. He loved you know, comic writers like P.G. Woodhouse. He loved him. He he would read to me sometimes from a a P.G. Woodhouse short story. He read me a couple of those. But uh, I think of the serious writers, Isaac Dennison and Robert Graves, he loved uh, Jean Renoir. I think he felt was the greatest filmmaker of all time, the Frenchman Jean Renoir. He thought The Grand Illusion was the greatest film ever made, or right up there the one or two best films ever made and uh, his favorite American director was John Ford it's as he pointed out that his two favorite directors who had something in common as uh, film poets were um, the the two that uh, that he he felt himself that he was the least like he said the kind of films he liked were the least like the kind of films he made <clears throat> Nevertheless I do see a kind of influence from uh, from both Renoir and Ford and also from von Stroheim, whom he liked enormously. The realism of uh, of von Stroheim is very much clear in some of Wells' films. But I think he was an original. Uh I think he was he had seen a lot of movies. He'd seen the fr- the uh the uh, German uh Expressionist films. He he loved Howard Hawks. He uh, he liked early Hitchcock, um, but the two favorites of his were really Ford and Renoir, both of whom are not uh, directors that you would immediately jump to think of looking at a Orson Welles film.
1: you move i told you not to move i mean it
0: i i I never went to the movies with orson uh i don't know that he went to the movies very much he seemed to know what was going on in terms of what was hot and what wasn't but um he once said to me that movies had lost some of their luster um after he started making them and i said why he said well became impossible not to see the ghost of the clapper boy before every shot. Clapper boy is the one who hits the slate. We call him the slate boy. Another thing that um, I just remember Orson talked about on this film, which he said nobody noticed or pointed out, was that in some scenes, it's noticeable, particularly in the funhouse scene, in the mirror scene at the end, but there are other places where you can see it. He actually changed the, um, the aperture uh, in the camera when he shot so that sometimes the image was narrower than normal, top and bottom. Um, he did that on purpose in a way that, in fact, uh, D.W. Griffith did, changing the, uh, the shape of the image by masking the top and bottom or sides or whatever. It's something that Griffith did. Orson brought that into sound pictures, something that very few people did.
1: But of course, she meant to kill Grisby too after he'd served his purpose.
0: Poor. He was amused that he'd done it and nobody'd ever noticed it. All this funhouse stuff, when I see it now, it's sad to realize that uh, it was a whole other sequence that he had in mind and uh, that he stayed up all those hours painting and constructing it himself and it ended up for nothing. So it's kind of imitation Caligari. Um, and unfortunately, uh, didn't end up in the picture.
1: In here, less likely to be here.
0: Of course, the Funhouse sequence ends with the famous Hall of Mirrors scene, which is a, a set piece that uh, has been much admired and much imitated. Um, it's sort of what everybody wishes they could do these days in a, in a thriller, is to have a sequence like that. How it was shot must have been very difficult because of the mirror images and keeping the camera out of it. I have no idea how he shot it, but... Uh, must have been extremely difficult. I love you. One who
1: follows his nature keeps his original nature in the end. But haven't you heard ever of something better to follow?
0: No.
1: I knew I'd find you.
0: Well, the preview of this uh, lady from Shanghai went badly, and so that affected the way the picture was cut.
1: But you did plan
0: for me to follow you. the same kind of thing happened on the Magnificent Emerson's two disastrous previews of that money which uh, effectively destroyed the movie that Orson wanted to make in the recutting he wasn't there to protect it and so things were destroyed uh, and t- thrown out and the um, same thing with lady from Shanghai an awful lot was cut out and he didn't have control over it um, so what we have is a, uh, is, is, the, is is all we've got uh, what's left of it very unusual movie but uh it's too bad we'll never see uh the movie that Orson had in mind well we i think we get a pretty good idea of the kind of picture it was and um uh, i mean orson didn't uh didn't uh complain uh, inordinately about the cutting of the picture. It was the soundtrack that bothered him the most.
1: You know, for a smart girl, you make a lot of mistakes. I think
0: sneak previews generally are are, uh, valuable... Mainly, if the picture is in a more of a conventional kind of picture, the more unusual the picture, the more difficult the sneak preview is. Uh, it doesn't work as well for the simple reason that um, a, an unusual movie needs word of mouth to prepare for it, and a sneak preview is cold. I think they're very valuable for comedies. I think for dramas less so. Generally speaking, I think, for for, for dramas, uh, they're not that helpful, and, um, also it depends a lot on what the other film is that's being shown, which can affect the one that's being previewed. So, um... It depends on the movie. In my own career, uh, when I made the last picture show, I didn't think it needed to be previewed. When I made What's Up, Doc, the following year, I felt it did need to be previewed because a comedy, you can tell a lot from a preview. A drama uh, needs word of mouth and probably needs more preparation. Lady from Shanghai is not a picture that you'd think would play very well in preview anyway. And you're
1: not going to. Not again. Oh, my God.
0: I'm afraid. Oh, from Orson, I learned so much that was both, you know, what I should do and what I shouldn't do.
1: Please! I don't want to die! I don't want to die!
0: (laughs) He was a genius and a towering, uh, a towering influence in in, uh, in uh, filmmakers I think he inspired more filmmakers to start making pictures than anybody since D.W. Griffith. But that's a big word,
1: innocent stupid's more like it well everybody is somebody's fool, the only way to stay out of trouble is to grow old so I guess I'll concentrate on that maybe I'll live so long that I'll forget her Maybe I'll die, Brian. Mm -hmm.